Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. The word of the Lord. Each week we make time in our liturgy for Thanksgiving, and we'd like to invite our hosts forward and uh, begin to pass these bags, and as you pass these bags, just even if you went to out loud, just say, thank you, Lord, for all the good gifts you've given me. Before you start, let's pray over this offering that God would use it for his kingdom. Father God, it is sometimes easy to speak of giving our lives to you. It is harder to trust you in the particulars of those lives, the concrete stuff of our days, But may we do so, for you are present in the mundane matters as well as in the holy moments. May our trust lead to obedience and our obedience to giving. And may these, our gifts, become hope and light in this world, all the way around the world. And we ask your blessing on these gifts as we pray and give in Jesus' name. Amen. These gifts literally go around the world, and uh, one of the exciting moments still to come in our worship today is we have David and Lauren Bass and their new daughter Chloe with us, 
And uh, you're going to hear our missions pastor, Paul Joslin, and the Basses engage and get an update on uh, what's going on in our partnership in Cambodia. And we look forward to that after the message. I need to grab a stool, so just talk among yourselves. I'll be right back. A life without sacrifice is abomination. Those are the words of Annie Dillard in her work, Holy the Firm, where she's describing the call of an artist. The call of an artist, she says, is to exhaust yourself in the display of truth and beauty. We've seen it. We have seen it. For his role in The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio plunged into icy rivers and ate raw buffalo. To imitate Ray Charles, Jamie Foxx wore prosthetic eyelids, leaving him blind during the day, and he would inadvertently be left on the set because the crew forgot that he was blind. For her role in Fantine in Les Miserables, Anne Hathaway shaved her head, lost 25 pounds, and subsisted on a daily diet of two wafers with oatmeal paste. To play a drug addict in Jungle Fever, Halle Berry stayed and lived in a crack den and abstained from bathing during the filming. For my left foot, Daniel Day-Lewis lived with disabled patients at the Sandy Mount School, of, School Clinic for several months, and on the set, he refused to leave his wheelchair and insisted on being carried around and spoon-fed by the crew. For the pianist, Adrian Brody moved to Europe and for two months lived out of one suitcase. He lost 30 pounds. Brody said, I couldn't have acted starvation without knowing starvation. We've seen it. We've seen it. It's, it's right here. You know you are an artist. That's right. Let's read these words. The Apostle Paul defines this force. Would you join me aloud? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word, handiwork, is a Greek word, poema from which we get our English word poem. You are a poem. You are an artist, a work of art, uh, displaying, exhausting yourself to display the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Welcome to 2 Corinthians. As we see Paul modeling this for us, exhausting himself in the display of Jesus' truth, and beauty. Now, if you've been in the series these last few weeks, you understand that Paul, who start, planted this church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, is having issues with some of the leadership at this church plant. He's left, he's getting reports back, and see some of these Jewish leaders in the church are trying to derail Paul's leadership. They're particularly concerned that Paul just doesn't fit their successful pastor profile. In those days, if you were a speaker, you made your living in two primary ways. You either charged a fee 
for your speaking. After all, if it's good enough to listen, it's good enough for you to pay. Or they solicited wealthy patrons who supported and undergirded their ministry. Well, here comes Paul, not soliciting from patrons, not charging fees for his speaking, but instead working manual labor as a tent maker. Well, let's be honest. Corinth was embarrassed. I mean, it would be like me refusing to take your salary and instead going door to door selling vacuum cleaners. I'm not suggesting in any way that we should try that. (laughs) But really, would you ask yourself if that happened, is he really a pastor? Really? So Paul pushes back on these opponents, and he pushes back in a very memorable way. Let me just get to the chase. He swallows his scruples. Now, we all have scruples, and we've all swallowed them, right? When uh, it's your kid that's running around in the playground, falls down, bloody knees, blood everywhere, suddenly you're over your aversion to blood. Or when it's your kid with the poopy diaper that gets called out in the service and you have to go change, even a dad will change a diaper. You get over your scruples. Or when it's a fire alarm going off in your house in the middle of the night, modesty suddenly moves way down on the the survival list. You get out of the house. Paul is going to swallow his scruples and do something that's very uncomfortable and awkward. That's why, as Jeff Reddy, you heard, I'm out of my mind to be talking like this. This is how fools talk. Well, Paul's going to swallow his scruples and talk like a fool. He's going to throw out his ministerial achievements in order to save his church at Corinth. Let's look at this speech. It's actually, the scholars call it the fool's speech because Paul, in his words, is talking like a fool. He's going to talk about himself. He's going to get over the aversion of self-reference and talk about his accomplishments. So what's interesting, as you read that, I'm, I'm curi- I'd be really curious if we pass the mic around, and as Jeff read all of those things that happened to Paul, you know, the beatings, the stoning, the lashes, the, the shipwreck, the prison, what were you thinking? I, I'm, I'm guessing some of you were thinking, wow, he must have had a robust physical dimension to him to survive all of that. How, how robust? I'm, or the other side of that is, boy, at the end of near Paul's ministry, can you imagine how broken his body was? Some of you were probably thinking about his perseverance. Some of you were thinking about, man, only a call to ministry could keep you in a position like that. You know what I thought of as I read this over and over again? Trauma. My guess is that no one in this room has ever been stoned. (laughs) We're in Colorado here. Uh, I actually said that last night, and they were supposed to edit that out for me. (laughs) No one has ever had thrown stone. (laughs) I'm really shaking right now. You've never experienced anything like Paul's experienced. Most of you have never been in jail. Most of you have never been lashed. I'm guessing none of you have ever been lashed. I mean, can you imagine just having one? I counted them. There's 23 events. I'm guessing no one in this room has had even one of them. Trauma. You know, psychologists, 
have a word for trauma, a, a phrase that describes the degree to which trauma impacts your life. They call it event centrality. Event centrality. Paul was an event center. As they've done studies on trauma, and I'm sure you've read about this as well, that if your identity is strong and if your life story is strong, that is the frame through which you view life and what gives you meaning and purpose, that trauma can come into that, but as long as you keep your identity intact and your view of life intact, trauma becomes part of your life, but it won't overtake your life. It won't drown you in that event that happened. But on the other hand, if you have a a good identity and a good sense. Trauma comes in and you still look through your frame of life, but trauma becomes part of life that can even, when redeemed, change your life in such a way that it really changes your heart and your mission in life. And suddenly, you're all about making sure that trauma that happened to you happens to no one else. Suddenly, you're about helping that trauma that happened to you, helping others who've had that same trauma. Your whole life mission changes. So trauma either can take you down or launch you in a whole new life. So it's interesting to see how Paul framed these traumas that came into his life. Verse 1130, this is how he's framing the trauma. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In chapter 12, verse nine, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul sees these traumas in his life as being part of the calling to display his weakness so that in his weakness, people will see the strength of Jesus. That's how he framed it. Now, the way he gets there is absolutely Paul. It's brilliant. Did you notice, again, as Jeff was reading the text, that he starts out because these opponents who were questioning Paul's credentials, because Corinth was all about character and credentials, they were questioning him. They were probably Jews. And so Paul starts out, did you catch it? Yes, are they uh, Hebrews? I'm a Hebrew. Are they Israelites? I'm an Israelite. Are they descendants of Abraham? I'm a descendant of Abraham. And then what you expect is Paul to keep going. Did they study under Gamaliel of Tarsus? I studied under Gamaliel, the most brilliant Jewish scholar of the day. Were they Pharisees? I'm, no, he doesn't go that direction, does he? <laughs> he sets them up for the huge rug pulled out from and under them because he says all these things and they're saying, yes, yes, yes. And then he says, are we servants of Christ? And then he says, I am more. I've been beaten. <laughs> Corinth, you want credentials? You want charisma? I'll give you beatings, prison, and shipwreck. How's that? The question comes, well, how do those things display the strength? If Paul says, the way I'm framing this trauma, the way I believe God is using it in my life is to show my weakness so that Christ's strength can be seen. Well, how is that happening? Let's just take one of these traumas. He says in verse 24 that he's been lashed from the Jews uh, 40 minus 1. That phrase is actually, we think, comes from Josephus. And in the synagogue law of Paul's day, if a person was convicted by the Jewish authorities of blasphemy, and Paul was preaching blasphemy, Christ crucified, that Jesus is Messiah, God. And so you would be uh, under a penalty of blasphemy, lashed 39 times. Not 40, because they wanted to make sure they didn't break the law. 
So you'd have 23 on your back and 13 in your front. Can you imagine? Now, five times. Here's the law. You didn't have to do it. When they brought you before the Jewish authorities, you could just go before them and say, yes, I'm guilty. And they would say, well, you have a choice to stay as a member of the Jewish synagogue. You need to be last, church discipline. (laughs) Or you can walk away. We'll expel you from the synagogue, never have to see us. We never have to see you again. Paul had a choice. And five times he chose to take the lashing. Why? So that he would not be expelled from the synagogue. Why? So that he could continue to walk into every town to plant a church and first go to the synagogue and debate Jesus as Messiah. He did it to show that Jesus loves the Jews. In his weakness, the strength of Christ, the love of Jesus is on display. But why does it have to be so hard? This gospel thing, this carrying the good news of Jesus into the places of the world where actually your life can be at risk, or even in our culture, more and more, pushback. Why does it have to, you wanna know what I would argue is the scariest verse in the New Testament? Second Timothy 3.12, in fact, Paul writes, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. What does that mean? I'm not totally sure. What I do know it means is that if we carry the gospel into our culture and any culture, there will be pushback. Why? Well, let's think about this. There's logical reasons Number one, we in this time between Jesus' first coming and second coming live in an age described as Satan having the power like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's roaming. His demons are influencing. And they're influencing in two ways. The New Testament tells us that first, they are blinding the minds of women and men everywhere through cultural lies through temptations, through diversions, through they're blinding the eyes of women and men, Satan and his demons. And then secondly, the New Testament tells us that Satan and the demons are inciting the powers. What does that mean? They're influencing world governments. They're influencing places where there's authority, in the church, even in large companies, even... Wherever there's power, Satan and his demons want to influence that power in such a way that people begin to devour each other, that they're about competition, that they're about oppression, that they're about war, that they're about nationalism and tribalism, separating, dividing, and hatred between. Satan is at work constantly in this age to blind minds and incite the powers. So you have that going on in this age. And then we've known that since the fall, when our parents, Adam and Eve, said to God, no, you're not good, and no, you're not good enough, and I don't want you, that every human heart since 
has pushed away from God. And thus God intervenes with his grace that we've celebrated this morning. But until God intervenes, every human heart says to God, no thank you. So, should we really be surprised when we walk into a room and say, Jesus is Lord, that that does not go unchallenged? Should we? No. The real question should be, why isn't there more opposition in our lives as we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, the pressure's on in our culture as we become more and more secular, more and more unanchored from any kind of Judeo-Christian worldview and ethic the pressure's on. I mean, if you bring a Jesus mention into a conversation, it's at the very least, what, awkward. Uh, at the very most, you'll be accused of being intolerant, trying to jam down. I mean, the, the, the box that the culture puts a good Christian into in our culture is, well, you're a good Christian if you keep your beliefs private and don't bother people. It's awkward. Annie Dillard, in another one of her writings, this is Annie Dillard's Sunday. I recommend anything Annie Dillard writes. But in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she writes that she lived once in rural uh, Virginia and went to meet a neighbor for the first time. The woman came to the screen door and was polite but nervous. So Dillard writes, she did not let me go after our initial greeting. She was worried about something else. She worked her hands. I waited on the other side of the screen door until she finally came out with it. Do you know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior? <laughs> My heart went out to her. No wonder she had been so nervous. She must have had to ask this of everybody, absolutely everyone she meets. That is Christian witness. I wanted to make her as happy as possible, reward her courage, and run from her. We sympathize with that woman, don't we? She embarrasses us a little, but we sympathize because Jesus told his disciples to fish and bait for people and that his disciples are to be salt and light in the world, and we have to shine if we follow Christ. We have to be salt, but how? That's the question, how? To look at the how, let's look at the why of Paul. I mean, it's an awkward thing to carry the gospel into any culture. What motivated Paul? Let me say it this way, out of the fool's speech, we see it's motivated by a fool's love. Do you know what motivated Paul to play the fool and to suffer all that he suffered for the sake of the gospel? His love of the church. We see it in verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. There it is. My concern for all the churches. Paul says that even more than all the trauma I experienced is what's driving me now. How do we see Paul's love for the church? In verses uh, one through four, 
chapter 11. He describes it this way. Here's how I love the church. Here's what's motivated, the full speech motivated by a fool's love. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to be one, I promised you to, to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's talking here, Paul, about the Hebrew marriage custom in the ancient world. It, it was a two-step process. You had the betrothal, which was a, like we would call it, engagement. And once a couple was betrothed, they were kind of officially married, except they didn't live together and they didn't have uh, sexual relationships. But in every other way, they were deemed married. It was it, Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which is why it was such a shock when Mary became pregnant, because they hadn't had the second ceremony yet. Paul saying, I'm like a father, and my daughter is betrothed. And you can bet I, I am jealous to get her with full reputation intact and full favor intact to that wedding. And I will watch over her and I will protect her from all other suitors. I will get her to her wedding day gloriously. Paul's saying, that's how I feel for the church. And by the way, this betrothal idea is actually where we are, right? We've been betrothed to Christ. And when he comes again is the marriage feast. And that's when the actual ceremony and reception takes place. So in this meantime, we are to be pure. We are committed to Jesus and we are preparing ourselves for that future time through sacrificial service to one another now. We're actually helping each other prepare for that day. That's the purpose of the church. So we are, we are betrothed, and Paul says, and like a spiritual father, I am going to get Corinth and Waterstone and every other church to that day. Do you see Paul loved the church? You know why Paul loved the church? Because Jesus loved the church. He gave himself for her so that she could be a radiant bride without spot or wrinkle. You know, there's many reasons to love a church. Many of us love the church because of mission. We understand that the church is plan A of God to take the gospel around the world, to advance his kingdom, to demonstrate the rule and reign of Christ now. The church is on mission. We love the church because we're on mission. We also love the church because every church is a waterstone, right? A sharpening tool. That's what waterstone means, a sharpening tool. Every church is an environment where you can go and find love and community and accountability and people speaking into your lives and you speaking into their lives and they can grow. So the church, we love it because it's mission and it's community, but do you know the number one reason we should always love the church, and I say this tenderly, because the church, when it's the church, is also known for dishing up servings of hurt and the fleas come with the dog but do you know the primary reason we should love the church is because Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. So how does this love play out? Paul says the reason that I went through all of this trauma is because I love the church and I want the gospel to be event central in the church. But how does that play out? Look at verse five. Just one way it plays out in the life of Paul. Here's how he shows the love. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles, his opponents. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself, talking about tent making, in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you for free? 
of charge. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. What we get here is a glimpse of Paul's philosophy of ministry. His pattern was this. Whenever he was planting and working with a church, like the 18 months he spent at Corinth, he would never charge that particular church any fees. He would take support from other churches. He would take support from other patrons. But he did not want his motives to be questioned while he was working with a specific church. Because if you question the motives, you question the message. So understand, Paul is saying, when it comes to loving the gospel and seeing the good news of Jesus in a church, if anything I'm doing with my behavior causes anyone to question the gospel, I change my behavior. Even though I have a legitimate right. I mean, Paul talks in other places that you shouldn't muzzle the ox. And a laborer is worthy of her wages. And if you make your living by preaching the gospel, you should receive your living from preaching the gospel. In every other way, Paul had a right to say, Corinth, you should support me while I live with you. But he said, no, I will, I will deny myself those rights so that no one can question the good of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you if that is in your mode of operation? Are you willing to submit even legitimate rights for the sake of of the gospel. Let me illustrate. It is a monthly occurrence that I have a, one of you married couples in my office, and sometimes it's really, really hard. They'll come in and they'll sit down and they'll say, we're gonna get a divorce. And I say, tell me. And they go on to describe it, and then I fire questions back. And these are, you know, if you might get these questions if you come into my office. Study up. I ask them, is there adultery? No. Is there desertion, like mental illness or substance abuse? No. Is this unequally yoked? I mean, is the spouse not a believer? No. Is uh, there anything else going on, like um, domestic violence, anything that your life's in danger? No. What's going on? Well, we're just not in love. It's misery. And I say, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. When you made your vows, you stood in front of people, and even more, God himself, and you committed to love each other the way Jesus loves us. And so do you know what that means? That means you even have to love your enemy. It's not good enough. Your marriage is a mirror for the world to see the gospel, the love of Christ. And so you stay in there. I mean, he can raise the dead. He can raise your dead marriage. Are you willing to submit your personal happiness so that people can still see the good of the gospel. There's another illustration in our church of this. We have individuals in our church 
who will be miles ahead of me in that line to throw their crown down at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, it's you. It's all yours. Everything I am, everything I had, it's yours. You're the glory and the goodness. And they throw their crown. There's, gonna, there's people in this church that will be miles ahead of me because of the cross they've been asked to carry. And here, a man describes these people. His name is Sam Albury. He's an Anglican minister from Great Britain, and he shares about his struggle with same-sex attraction. Homosexuality is an issue I have grappled with my entire Christian life. There have been all sorts of ups and downs, but this struggle is not devoid of blessings, as Paul discovered with his own unyielding thorn in the flesh. Struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more of God's grace rather than less. But over the past couple of years, I have felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We are not always convinced the gospel is really good news for gay people. We are not always sure we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. It is simply not possible to argue for gay relationships outside, or from the Bible. Not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. God's word is, in fact, clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been in love, but I have learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship, deep friendship with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, and the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these things is the opportunity to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But Jesus is always worth it. We are called to live out, to exhaust ourselves in the display of the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you some clarifying questions. This ache that we have, if we took a poll, I'm guessing it would be 100%. Every one of us desires, every one of us wishes we were more of a vibrant witness. Every one of us wants to be more exhausted in our display of the gospel. We want to be courageous, and we, we want to be even people that when you see coming, it's like, oh no, they're gonna talk to me about Jesus. 
We all want to be a more vibrant witness. There's this ache in us to do so. So let's walk through that ache. First reflection. Here it is. What is keeping you from being a vibrant witness for Jesus Christ? Name it. Is it fear? Is it self-doubt, like I might get a question I can't answer? Is it apathy? Name it. Right now, 10 seconds. Name it. What is keeping you from being a vibrant witness for Jesus? In naming it, you've captured it. And now what you do, secondly, is reflect on that's the, that's the lie, that's what I need to name and capture. Take it out, and what do you put there? Kingdom reality. So here's a dose of kingdom reality. Here's what to put down at the bottom of that thought. The fact is that all Jesus asks you to do is to mention him in a conversation. You don't need to memorize a script. You don't need to know every answer to every question about Christianity. The power source is not you. The power source is the Holy Spirit. And as soon as the Holy Spirit hears the name of Jesus mentioned anywhere, he shows up. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the closer. You can't talk someone to becoming a Christian. You can't wow them with your rhetoric. The power's in your weakness. Get out of the way. Just mention Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Tell him what he's done for you. And then stand back and watch the Holy Spirit work. The Holy Spirit is the power. And when Jesus is mentioned in a conversation, the Spirit is there. So you name it. You understand the kingdom reality. That's the Holy Spirit. And then step three Just take a step, a practical step. What can you do? Here's what the early church did. They practiced hospitality. This is our neighboring strategy. This is what we're asking you to pick up a guide out in the the hub and have a holiday party. I need to tell you a little secret. Personally, my personal prayer is this, that Waterstone will host 200 holiday parties. That is a very ambitious goal. I believe we can do it. I want you to get a date on your calendar and invite your neighbors over, your work friends. Get, do it with friends. Or do it with your group here at, at, at Waterstone, 20, 30, whatever it is. Have a party, invite friends. Can you imagine if we have 200 holiday parties and each of those holiday parties have 10 people, how like 2,000 people will receive a, a, a hospitality invite and they get a censure from Waterstone. Can you imagine how they're going to start thinking about us? Will you hoist a sail? Will you give room for the Holy Spirit? Everything you need is in this booklet. You can pick it up, get it on the calendar. Hospitality. I, I remind you that whenever Jesus was doing his best stuff, there was food involved. The second thing, Hospitality, you know what else fueled the early church and Jesus' ministry of reaching people was questions. You don't need to know all the answers. You just need a question or two in your pocket. Question like, hey, where were you born? 
Tell me your story. And when a person starts talking and talking and talking, you'll figure out where they are with God. You'll figure out what their fears are. You'll figure out what drives them. Just ask questions. That's what evangelism is. Just engaging another person, asking them to talk about themselves, and as they talk about themselves, they'll talk their way to God. Are you willing? So let's wrap this all up with three reflections, quotes, that capture everything we've talked about this morning. We even have some background music that's a guy playing a saw because God, you can use even hand saws. The trouble with deep belief is that it costs something. And there is something inside of me, some selfish beast of a subtle thing that doesn't like the truth at all because it carries responsibility. And if I actually believe these things, I have to do something about them. I used to say that I believed it was important to tell people about Jesus, but I never did. My friend Andrew very kindly explained that if I do not introduce people to Jesus, then I don't believe Jesus is an important person. It doesn't matter what I say. My main point is this, the moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard, but Jesus is always worth it. To be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist.